Hello and welcome to D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today, I'm very excited to be releasing the feature fireside chat with Andrew Wilkinson from Tiny from our last live event, C-Suite Mastermind in Victoria, British Columbia. Andrew, who the hustle dubbed the Warren Buffett of startups, is one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world, having ownership in over 40 D2C businesses that operate in and around the D2C and e-commerce spaces. Attendees at C-Suite got to spend the day with Andrew, got to ask him specific questions and more than one attendee actually got to chat about investment and partnership, which was just wild. Don't miss your opportunity to join the next C-Suite Mastermind in Las Vegas, March 23rd and 24th. Just go to directtoconsumer.co slash events if you want to join us there. Now, this talk is wide ranging and covers Andrew's entire career from when he started out building MetaLab to growing it to one of the world's top design firms through starting tiny, taking companies public, hiring and firing CEOs and everything in between. You'll also hear why the AeroPress acquisition made perfect sense and how the negotiations went down. And we also talk about bootstrapping versus taking angel funding, VC and or PE, and ultimately why grinders should remember to enjoy the ride. Again, don't miss your opportunity to join conversations like this in Las Vegas. Go to directtoconsumer.co slash events. Hope you enjoy this talk. On with the show. When I started some of my early businesses, I would go into hyper-competitive spaces and software. I would have a great product, but I wouldn't spend any money on customer acquisition because I refused to raise money. I just wanted to own it all and control it and bootstrap. So that was the wrong decision. And the way I would put it is, if you have a bakery and there's a lineup out the door and you're known as the best bakery in town for croissants, and you have two ovens, and you can only produce 200 croissants a day, but you have 400 people in line and there's constant demand, it's insanity not to go to an investor and raise money to buy more ovens. You just have to. Ultimately, that's a decision that every founder has to make, and it should be based on math. In 2023, say goodbye to operational constraints and skewed demand predictions. Printful Enterprise is here to take all of that off your plate with white label on-demand production. Reach your global customer base with more cost efficiency than ever and offer them a wide range of premium quality products from apparel to home decor. Printful will fulfill pack and ship orders all under your brand. Team up with a player who will always be dedicated to your growth. Team up with Printful Enterprise. We did at D2C and we've never looked back. Learn more at printful.com enterprise. That's printful.com enterprise. Join the team. Yeah, so what, what's, what's new with you? What, how do you see the D2C space right now from your perspective? To be honest, it's not my world. So my world's um, been much more selling pickaxes to gold miners. So we own a whole bunch of the top uh, apps in the Shopify ecosystem. We have a lot of uh, theme businesses in the Shopify ecosystem. So we think it's really hard to predict what brands are gonna win and lose. And you know, we've made some venture investments and some great e-commerce companies, but for the most part, most of our energies have been in providing tools and software. And in general, with direct consumer businesses, the only pattern I've tried to follow is just investing in incredible people who I think are gonna pull it off, but it's such a high risk and challenging business with very, what I would call a sandcastle moat, right? It's very hard to establish a real moat in that business, and so generally, I don't invest a ton in direct-to-consumer, although maybe some of you guys could change my mind. Um, but yeah, it scares me a little bit, and I really admire all of you guys going and doing it because it's uh, you know, a really hard business. 
Can you talk a little bit about the AeroPress acquisition and why that sort of qualified as one that you were willing to take a risk on? Um, so I'm a former barista. Uh, the way I got into internet businesses was one day I was making coffee and these two guys came into the cafe and they were always working on their laptops and ordering espressos. And I walked over to them one day and I said, hey, don't you guys have jobs? Like, how do you just sit here all day? And they go, oh, we have a web design agency and this is our job. And immediately I was like, oh my God, I'm a sucker. I don't want to be the guy serving espresso. I want to be the guy drinking espresso in a cafe. And so I went home and I learned HTML and I started Metalab. So I've always loved coffee. Uh, I actually love being a barista. I love talking to people. And I think in another life, I easily could have owned a coffee shop. So I've always been obsessed with various coffee machines and devices and espresso and stuff. So I followed AeroPress for a really long time. We had one in our office uh, for over 10 years. And one day I looked down uh, while I was making my morning AeroPress and kind of thought like, hey, who owns this thing? And typically when you do that, you know, it's some douchey Wall Street private equity firm or something like that. But it turned out that it was still owned by the almost 90-year-old founder who had started it. And the guy was fascinating. He was a serial inventor. I don't know how old everyone here is, but if you, if you remember those um, bright pink, neon pink Frisbees, uh, the Arobi, you guys yeah. ever play with those, right? Like, he invented that, and he's just like a serial inventor. And I called him up and I just said, hey, I'd love to come and meet you. And uh, he's, he goes, hey, I'm almost deaf, so you're gonna have to come fly down. And so me and Chris fly down to Palo Alto, my business partner, and we meet this guy, and he's like this fuddy-duddy old engineer who really, at the end of the day, all he cares about is inventing. And he had made this incredible product that had marketed itself. And so the business was doing significant scale. Uh, it was in almost every single uh, retail store in the world that sold coffee. If you walk into any coffee shop anywhere in the world and there's AeroPress and filters there. And they'd achieve this dominance despite not doing any marketing. They didn't spend a dollar on marketing. They just had this product that sold itself. And as I thought about the business more, I went, okay, so this is, uh, first of all, the category of coffee is growing over time. It's one of the only addictive substances in the world that is actually good for you. They've tried to disprove that, but nobody can. Coffee is actually good for you. And more and more people are making coffee at home. And so you've got this incredible you know, positive macro effect. And then you have what I would call a category defining brand. So the way to think about that is like Advil, Tylenol, that you know, defines painkillers. Even though there's commodity products that have duplicated it, people still, for some reason, pay 30% more for Advil. You might see that in Kleenex, you know, box of Kleenex versus the store brand, literally no difference, but people have an affinity for it. And AeroPress had established that category. This was a new way to make coffee, so much so that if you look on a lot of coffee grinders, uh, it literally says, you know, French press, drip, AeroPress, right? So this is like a very established niche. And as we looked at the business, we were like, oh my God, this business just has not sold online. They've only sold 3% of sales. And a lot of that was just Amazon third-party sellers. And so our theory was, you know, we can buy this incredible business. We think it can go on for 20 or 30 years, unlike most um, hardware products and stuff. Even if it gets cloned, people are still gonna Google AeroPress and th that'll be the search term and we can sell it, sell it to them. And, um, you know, very simply, we could just create a Shopify store and start selling online properly. And I'll give you guys a sense of the level of sophistication in the business. Because it had been run by this guy, 
who really wasn't focused on logistics and technology, you know, he was still running all the inventory management off of a system he had coded himself in the 90s, right? That's, that's like the, the level of best practice there was just, you know, very limited. And so, um, you know, we've come in, we've brought in a new CEO. We hired the CEO, uh, the former president of SodaStream, uh, who grew that business in the United States to $200 million, and we've let him run. And it's really just basic best practices and uh, modern e-commerce, so it's been a lot of fun. And how's it gone? Well, it's gone really well until, uh, you know, the global shipping crisis and all this stuff that I'm sure all of you guys have been dealing with. Uh, we're very happy with how it's going, but it's certainly been uh, impacted like anyone else. And most of my businesses historically have been digital. So I've never encountered the idea that, oh, a ship gets stuck in the Suez Canal and that screws up Q2. That's, that's yeah. just not something that I've contemplated before. That said, I think hardware does create more of a moat, right? It's harder to copy than software. And so uh, very positive. Was it a tough negotiation? Yeah, it went on for years, actually. So we said we wanted to buy the business. He threw out some crazy number. We just couldn't get there. And then uh, he actually was running a process to sell it to someone else. And the other party wanted him to sign, I don't remember what it was. They wanted him to sign a consulting agreement or some, some very specific agreement. And this guy was just like, hell no, I won't do it. And they're a public company. And so they got stuck. And we just went to him and we said, look, you know, we'll, we'll do it, we'll pay exactly what you want, we'll do whatever contract you want, let's go, and uh, we got it done. So yeah, it was a long, arduous process, but happy to be the new owner of AeroPress. And so how many companies now do you wholly own? So we, I wouldn't say we wholly own, most businesses we buy, we buy uh, say 80 or 90% and we leave the founder in for 10%. So AeroPress, for example, okay. Alan, the founder, kept 10%. Um, but we control about 40 businesses, maybe a little over that if you count some of the smaller stuff. We own some restaurants um, and you know a hotel and some other random stuff. Um, but yeah, about 40. And for people that aren't familiar with Tiny, can you talk a little bit about your sort of acquisition philosophy? I know, I know it's a very, the hustle famously called you the Warren Buffett of tech, Warren Buffett of startups, sort of just with that idea of, of sort of keeping transactions as simple as possible. Just talk a little bit about your acquisition philosophy with, with Tiny. Well, so like all you guys, um, you know, I'm an operator originally. I, I actually am a graphic designer. That's how I started, web designer. And I hated business. Uh, investing was boring, didn't understand math. I got 51% in Math 11. Really just had no interest in any of that stuff. And I had to learn it, I'm sure like many of you guys, by just figuring it out and doing it and doing basic math. And over the course of running my business, I got approached by all sorts of investors and private equity firms and all sorts of people knocking at our door. And over and over again, we'd go through the same nightmare. So they'd say, hey, we're interested in your business. And I'd say, oh, amazing. They'd say, oh, we want to come visit you. And so all these guys in suits and cufflinks and you know fancy shoes would show up in my office and freak out all my employees. We'd have this very, very long dating ritual, you know, three months, four months, or whatever of back and forth without talking about numbers. And often I would start before I would let them come up even, I'd say, look, I want you to know if I'm gonna sell you my business, I'm not gonna run it. You know, you're gonna choose a new CEO, or if you wanna buy my business, it's gotta be X, Y, Z number. They'd always nod along. And finally we'd get to the altar and they would try and 
tweak something or they'd send me a number that wasn't what we talked about or they want me to sign a contract. And I was fortunate, you know, my business had generated a lot of profit, so I could say no. But I think what they count on is cornering you and getting you into this sunk cost fallacy kind of situation and then finally putting the bolt in your head and getting you to agree to something that you don't want because you're counting the money in your head and you want to buy a new house and you want to buy a boat or whatever silly thing you want to go do. And so I had that experience over and over and over again and finally we sold a business uh, and had a very bad experience and we kind of watched, not only did we do a deal we weren't necessarily happy with, but we actually watched the new owners kind of mess with the business and get too involved and you know make the CEO who I had hired uh, made his life really difficult and so Chris and I said you know man why don't we just become the buyer that we wish we could have sold to and that was when we started tiny and the idea is really just to keep things incredibly simple I mean I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with Warren Buffett Warren Buffett will go and buy a 10 billion dollar business in two weeks and he'll send a one-page contract and we just kind of went, well, why is Warren Buffett able to do this on these billion-dollar deals? Maybe we can do this on $10 million deals or $50 million deals and eventually $100 million deals. Um, and that's what we've done. So over the last eight years, we've acquired uh, something like 30 companies. Um, and all we do is we try and do a simple deal in about 30 days. Uh, we let the founder either stay or go. Sometimes they stay and run it. Sometimes they leave. Sometimes they want to sell everything. Sometimes they want to keep a bit of equity. And we let them sail off into the sunset, usually hire a new CEO and leave them to it. And we just leave the companies alone. We realize that um, you know companies are groups of people and groups of people are complicated. And if you mess with them, they get pissed off and things go badly. So yeah, that's what we do. Are there any things that you've noticed in acquiring all these businesses? Like, What are some red flags that you might notice uh, in this process that in, in otherwise attractive companies? Have you ever had some things where things kind of look good, but then you just get a few red flags that, that turn you off of it? Well, I think um, the number one filter that I use is like, if I meet the founder and I wouldn't let them babysit my kids, then that's a bad sign. Uh, if I got stuck in an elevator with them for two hours, would I dread it? Does my stomach get a bit twisty when I meet them? Do I feel like exhausted after I meet them? Anything like that, and I will just fully walk. And I've learned that the hard way, like you can't do a good deal with a bad person. Um, so that's number one. From there, it's really, is this a business that can keep going? And how complicated is it? And does it have any kind of competitive advantage or moat? And so there's a lot of businesses that are incredibly impressive, but they're impressive because they have, uh, you know, Atlas, the founder, holding up the world. And they're the rainmaker and dealmaker and they're jumping around doing everything. Um, sometimes you don't have a business when the founder leaves. So it's that question of if the founder got run over by an ice cream truck tomorrow, how long can the business run? And often when you give someone a whole bunch of money, you know, it doesn't matter if they're staying or going. If you give them $20 million, they might just disappear. They, they basically have been run over by an ice cream truck. From there, we're also assessing what are the levers? Is there anything we can actually do to improve the business? So, you know, something as simple as pricing optimization, and in, in the case of Aeropress, marketing and product innovation and e-commerce, and then, um, oh yeah, fair price. So the other thing is, uh, it has to be at a fair price. So if you wanna pay for the, what the business is doing today, you don't wanna make any assumptions, right? So someone comes to me and they say, hey, I know my business is doing a million dollars today, but uh, I think in three years it'll be doing $10 million. I want you to give me $100 million. 
I don't want to sign up for that. I don't want to guess what's going to happen in the future. I just want to bet on what is the trajectory of the business today. I don't want to pay for that you know, crazy optimistic picture. Yeah, that's kind of roughly how we think about it. That's cool. It's probably the number one thing I've talked to mo mo most people in this room with, with a bunch of founders is, is finding those really competent people who will follow through on that vision. How's yeah. that been for you? Well, I mean, speaking from experience, I, I, I know exactly what all you guys are going through because I tried to get out of all my businesses over and over and over again, and it was really hard to find my first couple of CEOs and then also to trust someone. Like, think about it. This is the baby that you birthed and raised, and now you're giving it to the step-parent, and maybe they're going to abuse them. And it's really hard to trust. It's hard to trust the step parent and leave them to do their thing. So uh, I certainly empathize with that. Um, I've been out of day-to-day -day operations in all of our businesses for about six years, seven years, or something like that. Um, and I had a few really bad experiences. So I've hired people that are incompetent to run a company before, and they've you know, driven the business into the ground, and that was terrible. Um, and then I've also hired people that are just unethical. We had someone who, uh, you know, was literally defrauding us and lying and doing all sorts of horrible stuff. And so after those experiences, I think most people, if, I, if there's one thing I hear from founders over and over again, it's, I tried that, it didn't work, I can't do it ever again. And I think it's like cooking, like you're gonna burn your hand on the stove a couple times, and then eventually you're gonna learn to hold a cloth, right? You'll get better over time, and you just have to stick with it. The things that we generally look for, again, the, the most important filter is, the, is this person a piece of shit or not? And that's very important, and do I enjoy spending time with them? I also look at, you know, am I in agreement with them? So when they look at my business and they give me their opinion, do I agree with their vision? And if there's one thing I've learned, it's that it doesn't matter what you say, you will never change their mind. So if a CEO candidate or you know, executive or whoever it is comes to you and says, you know, I think the obvious strategy is for us to spend $100,000 a month on PPC. Um, you might go, well, you know, we've tried it. I don't know if it's gonna work or whatever. If you hire that person, they will do that. And if you don't let them, they'll resent you and they'll say, the reason I failed is because you didn't let me spend $100,000 on PPC. So now I try and think about it as, uh, you know, they're an elephant and I'm a rider on the elephant and they're going to go where they go. So it's really important that I like this elephant and I like where it's going to go because I'm not going to be able to change where it goes. I might be able to kill the elephant and put it in a different one, but I don't want to have to do that. That's very, that's very sad. Um, so that's really important. Um, and then from there, I'm also looking for someone who's run a business that's roughly double the size. Um, so if your business is doing $10 million in revenue, you want to find the person that's running uh, either number one or number two at a brand that's double your size in a similar or adjacent industry. You want them to look at your business and go, I see where you're going. I've already walked this route and here's all the pitfalls to avoid. Here's how we do it. And one of the things I've noticed is that generally you find different people for different scales. So you might hire one, you might be the founder that takes it to 10 million, you hand it off to the CEO, they take it from 10 to 30, probably gonna need another CEO from 30 to 100. Occasionally you get a unicorn who can go all the way, um, but that's very rare. We talked red flags, and just, just for the people in the room, in case anyone's like, 
you know, interested here. What, what, are, what are some of the, the green lights that you look for? I think you spoke about them early in the beginning, but what are some of the green lights that people in this audience could even be thinking about in terms of companies you'd be interested in acquiring or investing in? Oh, so um, what would I want to buy? Yeah. So generally, I mean, it's got to be profitable, number one. Like, we just don't, we don't play in the world of, like, you know, we're not venture capitalists, right? So we do do some venture, but it's like totally for fun. We expect to lose all of our money. We do it because we meet interesting founders and we like investing in them. Um, we are very much cash flow investors. And so when we buy a business, in my head, to be totally honest, to boil it down in the simplest terms, all I'm thinking is how do I get paid back in five years or less? That's it. All that. So if I buy your business for 10 times earnings, I need to double it. Right? Or if your business isn't growing, I'll buy it for five times. Right? Or if your business is growing super, super fast, maybe I'll pay 30 times, but I still need to go, how do I pay myself back in five years? Right? That's kind of how I think, um, which is very simplistic. I mean, a lot of investors talk about complicated models and stuff, but to admit it, like that's basically it. Green flags also, I mean, again, like I want a business with a moat. I want a business not reliant on the founder. I want a business with staying power. What else? I want something that's going to grow over time. Uh, I also like really boring stuff. Um, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's business partner, has this great saying, fish where the fish are. You don't want to be fishing where everyone else is. So if there's all these D2C startups that are doing, I don't know, deodorant, you don't want to be at that pond, right? That's the equivalent of saying, I'm going to go to a pond that has a couple big fish, and I'm going to elbow, elbow in, and there's 100 other fishermen. You want to go find the sleepy fishing hole with bountiful fish where no one else is paying attention. And so maybe that's a really boring business. Um, I kind of think like there's riches and niches, and that's generally where we focus. We don't like to go to the sexy areas where everyone else is uh, playing. Okay, so we have a lot of people in the room thinking potentially about capital or not. Uh, in a time, now money has kind of slowed down a little bit right now. Uh, should brands still be looking for investment capital to grow, or do you think they should be focusing more on bootstraps, improving their customer acquisition costs, things like that? Well, I think um, what's the, the Y Combinator talks about the idea of default alive, right? So you want to be in a situation where if you couldn't raise any more venture or you couldn't access debt, that your business would actually live. Uh, I think that's probably the most important thing, not going bankrupt um, in terms of success. Um, I think it 100% depends on the business. I think there's businesses, and I used to think about this in the wrong way. I was obsessed with bootstrapping. So when I started some of my early businesses, I would go into hyper-competitive spaces and software. I would have a great product, but I wouldn't spend any money on customer acquisition because I refused to raise money. I just wanted to own it all and control it and bootstrap. Um, so that was the wrong decision. And the way I would put it is, if you have a bakery and there's a lineup out the door and you're known as the best bakery in town for croissants, and you have two ovens, right? And you can only produce 200 croissants a day, but you have 400 people in line and there's constant demand. It's insanity not to go to the bank or not to go to an investor and raise money to buy more ovens. You just have to, like that's crazy. So I think um, ultimately that's a decision that every founder has to make and it should be based on math. You need to think about return on capital. If I raise money, can I make the pie bigger or smaller and is it worth the dilution. Again, lots of successful founders in the room here. What do you see as some of the best exit options for D2C brands right now between things like private equity, getting acquired by Unilever over here, 
or uh, you know, roll-ups and SPACs and things like that? There's good deals and bad deals in every single one of those, right? Like, it all comes down to the terms, and I think that private equity is structured in a way where they always win, right? So, you know, they might say to you, okay, I'll give you the, the $100 million valuation, but we're gonna give you what are called pref shares. And that means that they get a 20% return or whatever it is before you make a cent over and over. And they can end up eating the entire company. It's all, it's all very complicated and I didn't understand any of it when I was going through this. And so what would happen to me is I would say I wanna sell my business to a private equity firm. They'd send me a, what's called a letter of intent or like an offer and the number would be huge. And I would be like, holy fuck, I'm rich. This is amazing. And then I'd look at the terms and there's all these terms I didn't really understand. And what I didn't realize is that if you look at all the different scenarios, they basically are always gonna get their money back and always win and get the dividends out first. And so even though the headline number is great and it might make you feel really good, the numbers are actually a little different uh, when you play it all out. To be honest, I don't have an opinion in terms of like what the best options are. Everything has pros and cons. There's great private equity firms, there's shitty ones, there's great public companies, there's great roll-ups, there's, you know, everything has potentially uh, good and bad qualities. Can you describe a little bit your, your uh, the process of taking, a, this is the first company you've taken public that, that you did with WeCommerce, right? What are your biggest learnings from taking a company public? Uh, it's really hard. I have gray hair because of it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you guys can see, but I, I went gray the year we went, we did the IPO. I think um, it's really, like doing anything for the first time is just really hard, right? Starting a company is really hard. Uh, I was just talking to a founder who was doing my original business in agency, and so a friend of mine starting an agency and called me up and she's freaking out because she's doing her first client phone call. And I remember, when I started doing that, that was a 10 out of 10 in terms of stress. Now you could put me on a client phone call tomorrow with no prep whatsoever and I would be fine. And so like anything, uh, going public for the first time is incredibly stressful. We're going through it with another business right now and it's much less stressful. Um, what sucks about it is that there's a lot of red tape, a lot of complexity and none of it is fun. Right? You're doing audits, audits are not fun. You're dealing with investment bankers. Most investment bankers are not people you wanna get stuck in an elevator with. Uh, you've got everyone giving you different advice and you don't know who to trust. They all have messed up incentives against you. There's a lot of challenging parts to it, but um, at the same time, what's wonderful about uh, going public is you just have access to tremendous amounts of debt, equity, whatever you need. Um, and you have much larger players, right? Someone who might be able to cut a $10 million check in the private markets, uh, you might be able to go raise 100 million with just as much ease in the public markets. And frankly, like people just take you more seriously. Like, I know it's a silly thing, like, but when someone says like, oh yeah, you have a public company, the banks pay more attention, they take you more seriously, um, there's a bit of gravitas, even if it's, you know, to me, a public company and a private company, there's no difference really, other than some regulatory stuff. Normally here, you'll hear my announcer voice telling you about one of our partner's great e-commerce SaaS businesses, but today I get to tell you about my thing and invite you to C-Suite Mastermind, Las Vegas, March 23rd and 24th, 
2023. In September, we ran our first in-person mastermind in Victoria, British Columbia. It was a smash success and a clear sign to keep bringing together the top minds of our industry for concentrated learning and relationship building events. So now we can all meet up in Las Vegas, March 23rd and 24th, just ahead of Shop Talk. Check out directtoconsumer.co slash events to see the lineup of amazing mentors we're bringing to the table, including the Midday Squares trio, the founders and operators behind Obvi Collagen, Mini Katana, Kuru Footwear, and more. So whether you're building in CPG, health, apparel, or even bladed weaponry, we're going to have the content and connections at C-Suite that make a serious impact to your results in 2023. So that's directtoconsumer.co slash events. Viva Las Vegas and let's go. So I was reading uh, Ray Dalio talking about the fourth turning that we may or may not be living through right now. Curious, what, what are your thoughts on, again, this whole space, your space specifically, in the event of, of a sort of large financial upheaval? Well, I think like at the end of the day, if you own a business that people will patronize regardless of what's happening in the world, I think you're in a good spot. So, you know, for example, like when, when there's a economic correction, you know, women will still spend money on makeup, right? So you're probably okay. Um, if you sell $400,000 gold watches, maybe that's not an area you want to be in. Um, so, but at the end of the day, like there's a lot of examples of people who have gotten incredibly rich through periods where the macro environment has not been great. And it also creates a lot of opportunity because prices come down and everyone is fearful. I mean, look at Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett was investing from 19, what was it, 1945 to 72 or something. And the stock market was flat that entire time and he made 40% a year. And the reason for that is because just because the average of all companies is bad, if the average performance is poor, that doesn't mean you can't have individual businesses that absolutely kill it, right? And you guys, I'm sure there's many examples in this room of people where you know it's like, okay, this laundry detergent startup has crap margins and underperformed, and most laundry detergent startups suck, but there's one e-commerce founder who had an insight about it. They have better margins, better growth, better brand, better story. That can exist no matter what, right? Macro is like um, wind. You know, you can go sailing in any wind. It just makes it easier, harder, right, overall. But you can still be very successful. So personally, what I fear is more, you know, democracy falling apart and total chaos. But if that happens, we're all fucked anyway. So who cares? (laughs) So just try and and own great businesses. That's good advice. so as a media person myself with, uh, with D2C Newsletter, I've been really following what you've done with Capital Daily really closely. Uh, when last I checked, it was something like 30% of the island subscribes to this newsletter. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. So I, yeah. like, that, that, like, you're a media mogul then. Like, literally, in, in ways, you control the mind share of local news for a huge percentage of the island. Can you just talk a little bit about your, your plans with this model and, and how it's going with Capital Daily? Well, the goal was to crush democracy, and so far, we're almost there. Uh, no, I mean, so what happened was, um, you know, I mentioned, like, you know, the thing I fear is more not so much, like, mac- global macroeconomic stuff. It's more just, like, oh, is the world you know, going in a good direction or a bad direction? Is there gonna be freedom, all that kind of stuff? And so what happened was uh, when all the Trump craziness was going on, I would read the New York Times every day and there'd be all this amazing reporting about what's going on in the world. And then I'd pick up the local newspaper, the Times Colonist, and it would be a massive 
advertisement for Dodd's mattress, and then it would be a weather report, and then it would be some AP wire service, meaning they just pulled it from national news or whatever. And I realized that there was nobody here in Victoria doing any local reporting and actually sharing what's going on in the city. And so I kind of went, okay, I think that's important. I'll do it. I looked at it as like philanthropic, like I'm just lighting money on fire. And I hired a bunch of journalists. We started a MailChimp account and started sending out a daily summary of what's happening in Victoria every day at 7 a.m. And within two years, we had 55,000 subscribers. And we we're like, hey, this is like actually maybe a real business. And we realized that there's a lot of advertisers who wanted a more kind of authentic way to connect with the community and be part of something that a lot of people thought were positive. Um, and you know, like I said, I've been involved in a lot of businesses. This is the only one where I get stopped at cafes and people are like, holy crap, thank you, this is so cool. And actually has some uh, meaning for me. Um, so that, that's, uh, it's been really fun. And now we're expanding all across Canada. We have about uh, 12 or 13 publications. Uh, we raised a bunch of money and yeah, it's been really fun. It has that potential to really just innovate the entire local news model, like globally, potentially, eventually. Like, I guess you're expanding to Canada. Have you done any tests in the States yet? We haven't, but I'm mostly going back to that idea of fishing where the fish are. I think there's a lot of very deep pocketed people in the States who are looking at local news. And so I'd rather try and move quickly on Canada and do well here versus trying to go compete with other people who are venture backed or something like that. I love it. And eventually it'll also just, it could give you distribution for other things that you do in the future potentially. Do you think about it dovetailing in the future if you were to, or not really? No, not really. I mean, none of our businesses interact or synergize. We don't do any of that kind of stuff. Um, so no. Okay, take me back to when you started MetaLab for a second. Because I just remember hearing the stories about about you guys working on some of just, just the biggest Silicon Valley you know, brands out there. It was, it was Google, you guys did designs for, like YouTube, I don't know if it was Airbnb. How did you get your first, like, ginormous contract like that? Um, man, Six so, okay, so, so I'm working in the cafe, I see these guys, uh, I start teaching myself HTML and CSS, and I'm thinking about it, and I'm going, okay, well, I'm just some 19-year-old pimple-faced dork living in his parents' basement, you know, why would anyone hire me? And so I decided that I would pretend to be an agency. And so I came up with the name MetaLab, which sounded, I don't even know what it means, to be honest. And in retrospect, I've been like meta tags, that's like an HTML tag, I don't know. But anyway, came up with that name, and you know, I was a, I was a pretty good designer, and so I made like this site that made us look big. And that's the crazy thing about the internet is, for free, you can look huge, right? And so I just made it look like a really, really legit agency. And then I went on uh, job boards that where different companies were posting saying they needed um, projects done. And I emailed like a hundred of them. And like one guy got back to me and he goes, hey, I need a two page website done in 48 hours and I'll pay you 10 grand. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Like this, and I'm talking 10 grand US. So it's $13,000 Canadian. I was previously making $2,000 a month doing my barista job. And so I immediately jumped to, I designed this website, I quit my job on the spot, hire a buddy of mine who uh, is like a PHP developer to do some work for me, and I make $13,000. And I'm like, holy crap, this is amazing. And so from that point on, I just started asking every single client that I had, hey, can you introduce me to one more person? And so over time, I went from working with these little 
really small startups to working my way up to working with bigger startups and getting to know venture capitalists. And before I knew it, you know, I knew partners at all the top venture capital firms. And so I was constantly getting introductions to new work and we kind of had that network. And then in, in addition to that, I also started going to the TED conference, which, you know, think of, if you think about it a lot, I talk to a lot of founders about this and they say, well, I don't really feel like I should go to TED and, you know, it's $20,000 and, um, Maybe I'll go to some smaller conferences first. And I just like skipped the line. I just went right into this room I didn't deserve to be in. And by being there, we got to design the TED app. I got to meet Lorraine Powell Jobs, Steve Jobs' wife, get all, you know, work with all these crazy people. And it just accelerated everything. So if there's one piece of advice, it's like if you want, if your business can benefit from it, like just go fish where the fish are. Go to the room where the people that you need are gonna be. If you wanna raise money, go to the conference where all the venture capitalists are, whatever, whatever it is. But yeah, that was basically it. We stumbled and bumbled our way into- And then it cascaded. Yeah, and now it's a 300 person agency and works with Fortune 500s and it's crazy. I mean, one of the weirdest ones was, I got this email and it literally just said, hey y'all, love y'all's work, call me. And I look at the email, I'm like almost deleted it, and I look at the address and it's at walmart.com. And I'm like, what the fuck? And so I email, I call this guy, and literally it's some executive at Walmart who like, for some reason writes like a hillbilly, but is a really nice guy. And he gives us, that literally turned into like, probably a 10 or a $15 million contract doing e-commerce work for Walmart. So it's just like random stuff. And when I asked him where he'd seen us, I think it was on Dribbble or something, but like we just kind of like were out there. And to be honest, it's like black magic. I've, so much of it is just bumping into people, going to conferences, building a good reputation, being fun to drink with, like simple stuff. Key stuff. I was, I was listening to a podcast you did with Shane Parrish, uh, The Knowledge Project. It's a great one if you guys want to find that one. And we were, you were talking a little bit about wealth. And one of the things that I'm, I'm seeing, I've, I've seen a bunch of people in the agency game, a couple years ahead maybe, they're buying their dream houses in California. They're, they're sort of like experiencing wealth. I feel like a lot of people maybe in this room, you know, we're on the grind, we're doing well, but, but, but that idea of like really, you know, getting a dream house is, is, is kind of out there. I thought it was kind of interesting to hear some of the things that you like to spend money on, which is like connections with people, talking to people who you wouldn't maybe necessarily be able to talk to. I'm just curious, are there, have there been any conversations that you've had recently that have been really impactful that, that you've been able to sort of connect because of your, your status and position? Um, well, okay, I'll talk about how my journey through this. So like I grew up in a family where money was a hot button topic, right? My parents were constantly fighting about money. There's never enough and we weren't, we weren't poor necessarily, but my, you know, my dad had his own business. It was super up and down. And so as a kid, I just always fetishized money. I just wanted, didn't want people to fight. I wanted everything to be okay. I wanted to have enough. And so, um, that, you know, I, I, as soon as I started making money, it was like this incredible feeling to be able to go out for dinner and buy steak and buy a six pack and not sweat it and pay my rent and all that kind of stuff. And I was incredibly irresponsible with money when I first started making it. Like, I think I got that $13,000 wire I mentioned and I went to a store and I blew it all on a flat screen TV and some nice shoes and you know clothes and stuff. Um, over time, so you know, we, what you see a lot of founders do is they delay gratification. So they say, I am gonna grind, I'm gonna pay myself 80K a year, I'm gonna live in a small house, and then I'm gonna sell one day for $100 million, then everything's gonna be awesome. And what I did was a little bit different. I said, 
I'm going to spend, I'm going to pay myself kind of as much as I want. And so I started paying myself, you know, a $500,000 a year salary once, once I could. And then I said, every cent above that gets invested, whether it's starting a new business or eventually buying more businesses. And I've basically kept that up. The number's gone up personally, but um, I've just kept kind of always investing 80 to 90% of my profits into other stuff. And the, the problem with the model of grinding, I think it sounds really, really good, but what it actually does is it means that when that private equity firm spends six months courting you, and when you finally think you've gotten to the promised land, and you're about to get your $50 million wire, and that partner calls you up and says, oh, bad news, we did the diligence, and you know, your accounting numbers were off by 2%, and we want you to sign a five-year contract, and hey, you know, it's actually gonna be an earn out instead of upfront money, you say yes because you're so exhausted, you haven't pampered yourself, you haven't enjoyed the spoils of your labor in any way. And so I'm a big fan of actually enjoying the profits a little bit yourself because it creates this feeling where it's not all or nothing, you don't have to sell, right? Now, not everyone can be profitable in an e-commerce, sometimes it doesn't make sense to be profitable, um, but if you can, I really recommend doing that. Um, you know, you mentioned ways I use money, for me it's, Honestly, one of the things I've realized is I just love people. Like I'm incredibly extroverted and I like meeting interesting people. And so one of the things I do is I'll host speaking events, uh, you know, stuff like this, but I'll have a speaker come out who I really want to meet. So I'll get all my friends together. I get like all the community in Victoria together, all these great entrepreneurs. Everyone has a great time. And then the bonus for me is everyone gets together and then I also get to meet the speaker. And so I'll go out for coffee with the speaker. And in many instances, that's resulted in friendships. Like Shane's a good friend and that's how I met him. I've also had business relationships. So I won like a charity auction to meet Bill Ackman, who's like a very famous investor. And at the end of the lunch, he goes, hey, I like you, we should do business together. And I hadn't expected that, but now that turned into a really fruitful business relationship. So um, I just think, you know, meeting interesting people is a great way to invest in yourself uh, and it pays a lot of dividends in terms of business sometimes. And I can say, I, I know you sort of have uh, entrepreneurial groups that you meet with semi-regularly. I know Je uh, Jeff is in one of them, and I just know how much he's benefited. We actually, we cut Jeff. You cut Jeff out? Jeff's got, Jeff's got. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have said it but here. But being his, his business partner's co-founder, like just, just, I can just see the influence it's, it's had on him. Uh, can you just talk a little bit, I, you know, you're an extrovert, you, you, you like orchestrating these groups of people. Talk about what that sort of support network has meant to you. So um, I got invited like probably like 12 or 13 years ago to something called EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. Some of you guys might have been invited to that or YPO. And to be honest, I thought it was some stuffy, douchey business thing. Uh, I went to like one of the networking mixers and it was like all these weird guys in suits. I was like 20, I felt like I didn't fit in. And my friend goes, no, 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 trust me, stick with this, just do this thing called forum. It's the only good part of this. The rest of it is stupid. And so what it is, is once a month, you go into a room, usually like someone's office conference room, uh, with typically six or eight other entrepreneurs, and you do a deep dive on what's going on personally, family, and business. And everything is totally confidential, like hardcore confidential. And you do this every single month for years. And so for me, I've been in some of these forums now for 10 plus years. And Originally, I was in a forum with 
all these random people who didn't have internet businesses. So one guy had a woodworking shop, a uh, guy had a puzzle company, women had a popsicle company, and over time, I, w I was thinking I'm not gonna learn anything, and over time I realized that everything tastes like chicken when it comes to business. You have people problems, you have co-founder problems, you have investor problems, you have board problems, you have pay problems, like it's all the same. And so I ended up becoming incredible friends with all these people and I've expanded and now I do four different groups. Jeff is a member of the, uh, for best, now. the best one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, for now, yeah, we haven't cut them yet actually, I was joking. But, um, but anyway, um, and it's, it's crazy. I mean, like the executor of my will is one of my forum members and he's someone that I didn't know. I only know because of this forum group. And being a solo founder, um, you know, I now have a business partner in Tiny and Chris has become my business partner in some of the other businesses. But I started totally solo. I didn't have a board of directors. I didn't really have mentors or advisors. And so having a room of people going through the same stuff I was at various, various different levels was incredibly helpful. And yeah, it's and now it's become like this incredible social thing where I've made great friends and got great advice and I just love it, it's so fun. I love that it incorporates you know, the confidentiality but then also specifically like what's going on at home. I just feel like that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, we talk about our businesses and we'll probably talk about our businesses to compensate sometimes for what's going on at home. So I think that's really a, a really good part of it. Yeah, and you see like crazy like, you know, divorces, affairs, deaths, uh, business partnership breakups, like you, and you learn from all of those because there's nothing better than, you know, the best is if you can read a book or hear from someone else and avoid that same peril. Um, and you see it very acutely in some of these forums. So it's been really impactful. And I think I've avoided a lot of potential pitfalls as a result. Cool. All right, thank you so much for coming up here, Andrew. This is yeah, awesome. Thanks, guys. That was fun. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're not getting the D2C newsletter, you can subscribe for free at directtoconsumer.co. And if you want to learn more about Pilot House's all-killer, no-filler services, take off to pilothouse.co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.